Welcome to the Lessons for Living television program. My name is Bill Santos. Thank you so much for joining us. At some point or other, we've all thought about giving up. No matter what the task, we get to a point where we can no longer see the light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to make it, well, to the finish line. You know, the Olympics are full of inspirational stories. One of these is the story of a man by the name of Derek Redman. At the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, Derek was making a second attempt to fulfill his Olympic dream. You see, he had been forced to pull out of the 1988 Olympics in Seoul due to an injury to his Achilles tendon. He had gone through multiple surgeries, but he was in good shape. And in Barcelona, well, he was favored to win the 400-meter dash. He won the quarterfinals and moved on to the semifinals. Well, he started the race well. He ran for about 150 meters before his hamstring snapped. He stopped. He fell down in agony. And after a few seconds down, he remembered where he was. And he got back up and continued running. Unable to run, he just hobbled. Well, the other competitors had finished... But Derek would not stop. Even though the competition was over, he just wanted to finish. A man came and fought off security and ran onto the track towards Derek. It was his father, Jim. He told Derek, just, just stop. You have nothing to prove. But Derek replied and told him that he did have something to prove. Well, his father helped him get back to his lane. And Derek finished the race. Despite an injured hamstring and terrible pain, the crowd of some 65,000 people, they stood up, they gave him a standing ovation. Even though Derek was officially disqualified and the Olympic records to this day state that he did not finish the race, he finished it. He finished it better than anyone else on that track. Why was Joseph considered great? Why does the Spirit of God hover over his life more than any other person in the book of Genesis, including Abraham? Well, he was great because of his faith in God, which manifested itself in an unselfish, generous attitude towards others and his magnificent attitude towards his own difficulties. You see, a strong faith leads to a good attitude. Now, as we pick up our story this week, we come upon what appears to be a rather uneventful incident. Joseph wanted to see in his brother some of that same attitude that God had kindled within him, a powerful faith and a positive response to others. But his brothers, well, they had still not presented much evidence to show that they, in fact, shared Joseph's perspective. So Joseph sets up a two-part final exam for his brothers. Let's go to Genesis chapter 44, beginning at verse 1. Then he commanded his house stewards, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So as he had on their first visit to Egypt, Joseph ordered that 
the brother's sacks be filled with food and once again, each man's money just be tucked into the top of the sack. But in addition, Joseph had his own silver cup placed in the top of Benjamin's sack. Well, the sons of Jacob were not far from the city. When they looked back and they see the prime minister's steward overtaking them. Well, once he caught up to them, he accused them of stealing from the prime minister. How could you do such a deceitful thing after being treated so well? We would never do such a thing, the brothers responded. There is nothing in these sacks that we were not given. We came for grain and we've taken grain. If you find anything else, well, we will be your slaves. In fact, you may kill the one who is guilty. You see, that's how certain they were. That's how positive they were that they were innocent. They didn't hesitate to let the steward examine the sacks of food, beginning with Reuben, the oldest. But lo and behold, when the steward got down to the youngest, he finds the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Well, to say the brothers were stunned is an, under is an understatement. They knew they hadn't taken the cup. How in the world had it gotten into Benjamin's food sack? As the enormity of the implications of this circumstantial evidence dawned upon them, they moved beyond being stunned to being distraught. In their anguish, they tore their clothes. They had to return to the city with the steward, of course, and immediately they were ushered into the presence of the prime minister. Judah then does the talking. Verse 16. So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whom's possession the cup has been found. Well, this confession from Judah's mouth was amazing. But this was precisely what Joseph had been waiting for. This is why he had given this final exam. They passed. In fact, all the brothers made straight A's on at least the first part of the test. And speaking for his brothers, Judah did not attempt to justify himself or the others. Nor does he try to pass the blame off onto Benjamin. Unlike before, they didn't turn on Benjamin and reject him as they had rejected Joseph so many years ago. So Judah says in no uncertain terms, we were all guilty. Given their history, what an amazing admission. A real change has begun in their attitude. Now think about the fact that these words were coming out of the mouth and the heart of Judah. Joseph wanted to know whether his brothers were able to read the hand of God into daily life, even, even in things that seemed unfair, even in misfortune and death, he wanted to see if their vertical scope was clear. And now he heard this confession coming out of the mouth of Judah, who'd laid the guilt on their shoulders. Before God, he said, we have been found out. We are guilty. Our iniquity has been discovered. 
I believe that in his confession, Judah was actually going back some 20 years earlier and was referring to those days when they not only hated their brother Joseph, but turned against him and sold him into slavery. Had it been not for Reuben, they would have murdered him. This now haunted these men. And Judah had begun to realize that God did not overlook an unrepented offense. Joseph said, verse 17, But he said, Far be it for me to do this. The man in whom's possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. You see, now we have the second part of Joseph's final exam. First came the vertical test. Had his brothers gotten to the place where they read the hand of God in their daily life? Well, yes. Had they demonstrated this in their attitude? Yes. Next comes the horizontal test. Which would they choose? Would they choose themselves or their brother Benjamin? Had there been any change in their hearts over the years? So Joseph says, I'm not going to punish all of you for one man's crime. The cup was found in the youngest brother's sack. So he's the one I will punish. He will forfeit his freedom and he will become my slave. The rest of you go in peace. You can return to your father. Verse 18, then Judah approached him and said, oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. and Do not be angry with your servant for you are equal to Pharaoh. Now, do you realize who's speaking here? It's Judah again. These words are coming from the same man that some 20 years earlier had pronounced, here, here comes that dreamer Joseph. Let's kill him and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And shortly after that cold-blooded proposal, he rationalized, well, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let's sell him to the slave traders instead. Yet here, he begins pleading for his youngest brother. Added to that, he's pleading on behalf of his father. You can read about it in verses 18 to 34. A few years earlier, Judah could not have cared less what his father thought, since his father had always shown favoritism to Rachel's sons. In fact, the violence and cruelty Judah and his brothers had perpetrated against Joseph, well, that was an indirect act of cruelty really committed against their father. Now, of all things, this same man is exhibiting this sacrificial attitude. Take me, he says, take me instead, but send Benjamin back home. I can't bear to see this evil overtake my father. This is not the same man. He has changed, no doubt about it. Judah and his brothers were becoming transformed men. And Joseph recognized this. You see, repentance had done its work. They had now passed both parts of the final exam. Now, I believe this explains why Joseph decided at this very moment to take off his mask of secrecy. Now, the falling represents, in my estimation, one of the greatest moments in the entire Old Testament. The climax in a story 
Well, that has captured our attention for weeks. Genesis 45, beginning at verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him and cried, Have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Bible says Joseph cleared the room of all of the Egyptians, all of the stewards, all of the servants, all of the slaves. Only the 11 brothers were left trembling before him, thinking, what is going to happen now? What in the world is he going to do to us? Suddenly, they saw this Egyptian official, a man second only to the Pharaoh in importance, break into tears, not like silent tears. I mean, tears are just pouring down his cheeks. His outburst was so great that even those that had been sent outside the room, they heard it. And they began to tell others in Pharaoh's household that there was something going on here. These astonishing words followed the tears. I am Joseph, said the prime minister. Is my father still alive? He broke his silence in both words and language, for he spoke to them for the first time in Hebrew. I am Joseph. Well, the brothers were dismayed at his presence. That's putting it mildly. You know, where I grew up in Kensington Market, we'd say they were just blown away. They were stunned. They were speechless. They were terrified. They began to, to, to tremble. What, was this some kind of a diabolical trap? As they stood there trembling, he said, come closer. Now, the Hebrew verb used here is nagash. It refers not to just spatial proximity, but to intimate Closeness. It's a term that is normally used for coming near for the purpose of embracing or kissing someone. It, it's not the common Hebrew term used for merely coming near or, 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 or walking up close. In fact, the NIV translates it, come close to me. I think this passage simply implies that Joseph wanted his brothers to observe his face up close. And this would prove the, the final evidence that he was in fact one of the 12, not an Egyptian ruler, but really their own flesh and blood. Well, that did it. What they had found impossible to believe earlier, they were now forced by proof to accept. Their mouths must have just dropped open at this moment. The book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 230, says, His brother stood motionless, dumb with fear and amazement. The ruler of Egypt, their brother Joseph, whom they had envied and would have murdered and finally sold as a slave. All their ill treatment of him passed before them. They remembered how they had despised his dreams and had labored to prevent their fulfillment. Yet they had acted their part in fulfilling these dreams. And now that they were completely in his power, he would no doubt avenge the wrong he had suffered. 
Well, Joseph had just revealed the best-kept secret in Canaan. Surely none of the brothers had ever told anyone what had happened that day out in the fields near Dothan. How would this man, how would he know the truth if he were not their long-lost brother Joseph? They just stared at him, unable to blink as, this, as he reaffirmed, I'm the one you sold into Egypt. I'm Joseph. This is another one of those moments that is impossible to describe. I mean, words are just not, can't adequately define the scene or contain it. If you can read Genesis 45 and not be caught up in the emotion, well, then you've not done jo justice to Joseph's biography. These, these few simple, straightforward words, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. They embody this sea of emotions that has washed over these brothers, not the least of which was their lingering guilt. But he saw it in their faces. And that's why he said what he did next as he again demonstrated grace in abundance. Genesis 45, beginning at verse 5. Now, he said, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see, humanly speaking, the average person, when faced with people who have done them such grievous wrong, would likely frown, well, and demand payback. But not Joseph. He's a changed man. He was God's man, which means he was a great man. And so with the arm of the Lord supporting him, he could look into his brother's anxious eyes and say in all sincerity, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me into slavery. It was not you who sent me here, but God, he sent me before you to preserve life. What a vertical perspective. But God. Those two words change everything. Joseph could not have spoken such words of reassurance if he had not fully forgiven his brothers. You see, you can't genuinely embrace a person you have not fully forgiven. Joseph did not see his brothers as enemies because his perspective had been changed. You didn't send me here. God sent me here, and he sent me for a reason, to preserve life. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? It wasn't you guys that pulled this off. It was God. You thought you were doing evil to me, but God worked outside your evil intentions and preserved life. And he says it again. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me, but God, but God, but God. Underline that. God sent me. Joseph was a man that operated continually in his life with a divine perspective. 
I don't know what goes on in, inside your skin. The memories that haunt you or the pain you live with because of someone else's wrongdoing. But I know humanity well enough to know that most of you, including me, at one time or another, we've been treated badly by someone. When that happens, our perspective becomes cloudy. We begin to remember the manipulation. We remember the wrong. We remember the unfair treatment. We remember the torturous trauma, the rejection. Evil was done to you. It was meant to be evil. It's no time to deny it. Those people, they deliberately wanted to hurt you. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil. There was nothing good in their motives. Joseph said so. But here it is. He says, but God, but God. You see, Joseph allowed his theology to eclipse his human emotions and his bad memories. But God meant it for good. God sent me here. He planned it all. He arranged the events in such the way that nothing was omitted. And in the process, brothers, he remade me. He gave me this possession. Tell my father, I want to offer you a place to live right here near me in Egypt. On top of his forgiveness and reassurance, he made them an offer they couldn't refuse. He urged them to return, bring their father to this land where they could enjoy relief from their barren existence. Joseph says, brothers, I've seen a change in your lives. You care about your father. You care about one another like you never did before. You care about Benjamin more than you care about your own lives. What a change. You see, God gives us the example of Joseph, a great man, supportive, merciful, gracious, generous, and unselfish. He's not through showing how much he cares for them. Now, watch this next scene, beginning at verse 14, Genesis 45. Then he fell on his brother's Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. Well, I would imagine they talked with him. They had 25 years worth of talking to do. And I'm confident that every time they went back and started to revisit their wrongs, Joseph stopped them saying, we're not going there. That was then, this is now. God had a plan. And it's all worked out for our good and his glory. Let's, let's talk about that. Let me tell you something. If you're under the impression today that you're going to be great because of some accomplishment you've achieved, but you harbor the wrong attitudes in your heart, you're in for a terrible jolt. Greatness. Well, that comes in the sweet spirit of humility and forgiveness towards our fellow man. Joseph here sets before us this gracious example. You know, Thomas Jefferson was correct when he one time said, when the heart is right, the feet are swift. Part of the reason that we're so sluggish in carrying out the application of God's truth in our heart 
is because our heart is not right. But when our heart is fixed, we become fleet-footed servants of God. But it takes God to make the heart right. When I have a wrong attitude, I look at life humanly. When I have the right attitude, I look at life divinely. And that's the real beauty of Joseph's life. That's the kernel of truth his life represents. He was great mainly because of his attitude. You say you want to be considered great someday? Here's the secret. Walk by faith, trusting in God to renew your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to make our heart right and our feet swift. We acknowledge that the only way out of the pit is your way. And the only solution to our bitterness is your grace that makes so in the life of each and every one of us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we've come to that part of the program where we want to share with you what our free gift is this week. You know, sometimes when you've gone through unfair treatment and you've been wronged by someone, you, you begin to feel that no one is listening. You're out there all by yourself. Well, that's why I wanted to offer you this little booklet. It's called God is Listening because God is always listening. If you'd like to receive this little booklet as a gift from us, free of charge, here's the information you need. To receive today's free offer, you can log on to the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. That's the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. You can also write us at Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conlon Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G 0A3. That's Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conlon Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G 0A3. If you live in Canada, this offer will be sent out to you free and postage paid. For viewers living outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you wish, you can order this offer by calling our 1-800 number at 1-800-972-0337. Well, we've come to the end of another program. Let me start by thanking you uh, for watching and spending this time with us. We truly appreciate that. A few things before we go. I want to remind you of the website our Lessons for Living television website, l4ltv.com. The website uh, has a number of different things on it, including all of our previous programs, uh, live appearances, you know, where I'm going to be appearing live. And if you're in the Toronto area, why not come out and visit me at my church where there, I'm there most Saturdays, 89 Centre Avenue. That's in the Bayview Steels area. We get going with Bible study at 10 a.m. We have our worship service at 11.30 on Saturday morning. If you're in Alberta watching us and you're looking for a church in Edmonton or Calgary, some other place, just contact me and we'll get you out there. So the website has all of that information, including a tab that you can make a donation that goes directly to the ministry to keep the program on the air. I want to remind you of another website called missionnowcanada.com. And that covers our overseas mission work and we've got some exciting projects going on overseas. If you want to be a part of that, 
check out the missionnowcanada.com website. That's it for this week. I hope we get a chance to do this again next week. God bless you. We'll see you then.